Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Trump on the speaking circuit. I shouldn't say speaking circuit. It's the campaign circuit. He's campaigning. He's running for president. So he's campaigning, and he's in Davenport, Iowa, and he's discussing the need for education reform. For weaponized like this group of people, they're maniacs. We stand up to the rhinos, communists, and the anti-energy extremists. We stand up to the open borders fanatics and the pro-China special interests and the fake news media, of which we have quite a bit of it right here. We put workers first, we put farmers first, and above all, we put America first. We put America first. And this is one of the reasons people discuss that he is surging right now in polling and in the idea that, yeah, he's seriously running and he could seriously be the guy. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? Good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. The phone number, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. This is the guy that people want to see. Give me strategy. Give me policy. The reason the CPAC speech worked so well is that it wasn't talking about Ron DeSanctimonious or whatever other fuckcocked nickname he's got out there. It was talking about policy. People don't care about your fights. They want to know what's in it for them. And when Donald Trump starts talking about what's in it for them because he refers to it in the way of us, it's about we. The whole concept of make America first, make America great again is about we. And that connects. Of course, like 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 with all uh, slogans, people can read into it anything they want. It's like hope and change from Barack Obama. What in the world does hope and change mean? Well, it means whatever you want it to mean. It means something different to every single person. And that's what makes it so good because they internalize it. They personalize it. And therefore they say, oh, Barack Obama thinks like I do because hope and change means X. And he says hope and change. So that's what he means too. Make America great again, same thing. Means whatever it means to the person, which allows them to connect in a very unique way with Donald Trump. When he talks policy, he can win. When he talks smack, he can lose. All he has to do, like, I can just jump around in the speech that he gave in Davenport. Here, I, I, just, I just jumped ahead a little bit. Do you know what that is? It sounds so nice, Kim. It sounds so nice. Waters of the United States. I said, I'm going to get killed when I repeal this one, because the only thing good about it was the title, Waters of the United States. And uh, I repealed it, a federal power grab over every ditch and every puddle on private land that make it sound like it was a lake. You couldn't use your property. They really were taking your property away. I'll never forget when I did it. I had a group of farmers and builders, home builders, standing behind me, about 50 of them. And when I did it, half of them, these are men, and in some cases, about five women, they never cried in their life before, maybe when they were a baby in their mother's arms, but they're not criers. Half of the people were crying. I gave them back their rights. I gave them back their property. I mean, it was an incredible thing. 
Winning argument. Winning argument. Look at what I did and look at what I did for you and look at how I gave you back the rights that are yours that government largesse took from you. Winning argument. And delivered with a plum, delivered factually, delivered honestly, with anger towards the people who took it, and a little bit of humor and all this. Sorry, that guy is tough to beat. That's the guy. And I, I, I highlight this speech because I thought it was in these areas that I'm sharing with you, and some of it I'm, 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 I'm just jumping through as I'm talking to you. I thought it was just delivered well. Man, if how many times have we said it? If Trump can just stay on script, that guy is good. It's true. I don't know why anybody denies it. Now, I argue, as you've heard me say, if DeSantis is the nominee, I'm voting for DeSantis. If Trump is the nominee, all right, I'm voting for Trump. Me right now, I'm in the DeSantis over Trump camp because of the baggage conversation. I think I can get the fight out of DeSantis and not have the baggage of Trump. That said, if Trump can stay on message just like this, man, formidable. And America is not as bothered by Trump as a a progressive media and a mainstream media wants to tell them they are. They're just not. They're just not. That conversation about waters of the United States, that conversation about education, it connects. It connects strong. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Stephon Gilmore to the Cowboys. The good Mr. Okariki, I, I think it's the Giants, right? And Matt Ryan, well, that's a cut. Thank goodness we have a $23.5 million kicker. Tony Katz, good to be with you. JMV joins us. He is the voice of sports. In Indiana, 93.5, The Fan in Indianapolis. Um, we are now getting into the Dear Lord, What is Happening portion of our program because the Cowboys are building a massive defense and we've gotten rid of two pieces of ours, picked up a kicker, said goodbye to Matt Ryan, as you said, uh, would happen. So it's now all eyes to quarterback. Why are we clearing this much cap space for somebody we're taking in the draft? Well, you can look at this two different ways regarding Stefan Gilmore, Tony, as we kind of talked about on, on text back and forth yesterday. You can look at it as the Colts maybe doing a guy that's going to be 33 playing the NFL cornerback position, a solid after he thought last year he was going to come here for the next two years and this was going to be a viable, you know, playoff-worthy product, which clearly it was not last year. It was a circus. It was a joke. And this year, you know, obviously with a reboot here, you're doing him a solid by shipping him off to a team for a fifth rounder and 9.9 in cap space in return where he can get a shot at getting back to the postseason or where I think it is. This is a team that, as I mentioned earlier, is rebooting again under Chris Ballard and is clearing some of these uh individuals from this team that are going to be deemed unnecessary for a squad that simply put Tony is going to be rebuilding and is not going to be that good beginning next year. I think that's what this is about. We'll look down the road, see if they think about doing the same to Kenny Moore. Samson Abukam was brought in 
as a defensive end. I think that was yesterday. Maybe yesterday yeah, from the Rams, a free agent um, uh, from the Niners or the Rams. One of the two. No, the Niners. You're right. My mistake yeah. Yeah. from the Forty Niners. No, you're no, you're right. He was with the Rams before too, so you're right. Mm. But no, nah, they bring him in at defensive end. So you had Yannick Ngakwe, Tony, a year ago, brought in as a a one year guy. So I would doubt that he is back now. And I believe that this Colts team is in complete and utter rebuild mode. That's the answer. How many people of the fan base are going to accept rebuild mode after all of this? After everything they've been promised and everything they've been told, how many of them are going to accept, oh, yeah, we're just we're, we're, we're going back through the motions, kids. It'll be a couple years. Just hang tight. No, it's going to be tough. That's going to be a tough sell. There's no doubt. And that's why we've talked about this before. Uh, whomever they end up getting a quarterback here, and however they put this thing together, it, it's not going to have to turn around because I think people do you know, understand. They're not going to like it, but they're understanding the direction in which they're going. But you do have to show here and there signs, Tony, of growth, right? You have to show signs of, you know what, that was the right quarterback that you picked. You know what, that was the right move that you made right here. The problem they're going to have, they also have, Tony, guys that are ready-made to win right now in win mode. DeForest Buckner being one. Stephon Gilmore, who they traded yesterday, was one. Jonathan Taylor, who they are going to give a new contract to before the start of camp, I'm assuming coming up in the summertime, that's another guy that's ready-made. He plays a position in the NFL where there's not a long-lasting amount of tread on the tires before things start going downhill. So they kind of got this thing upside down a little bit. Normally you start with a rookie quarterback and you build around that rookie quarterback, but they have built around other needs and assets. Quentin Nelson being another one right here. Braden Smith being another one as well. You built around these guys and not your quarterback, and you're a little bit upside down right here. Not a lot of NFL teams do it, and certainly not a lot of NFL teams have tried to do this with a great deal of success. Talking to JMV from 93.5, 107.5, the fan, the voice of sports in Indiana. Uh, I want to discuss how Jim Irsay got himself into the place where he was going to once again trust Chris Ballard with the entire ship. I have been critical of Jim Irsay asking if he has not been too involved and creating too much of the issue and the controversy, too much voice to these things. I mean, just uh, a, a few weeks ago when he's talking about, you know, Bryce Young and he's like all super excited uh, uh, about uh, the quarterback from, from Alabama and you're not going to get him. There was no trading up uh, to get him. Will you or will you not get Will Levis from Kentucky is now the question. But the other side of that is you leave it all up to the guy who over these past seasons has not brought you a winner, and you're saying this is still the guy to bring you a winner. Where does that faith come from? Normally, Tony, when you get six going into your seventh year, you're like a John Snyder with the Seahawks. You have a resume where you've won a championship, where you compete each and every year for a division title. And that's not been the case for Chris Ballard. My theory on this is, and I think we've talked about this before as well, had they not been in search for their long-term future rookie drafted quarterback, had they not been in search of their next head coach, had Jeff Saturday not been an absolute hiring disaster during the course of the season, I think a lot of that played a role. Because simply put, Tony, I don't think Jim Irsay 
wanted to do all this himself and or hire all this himself. Here's another thing that's funny about this, right? That normally, normally when you have a guy that is hired, it is a general manager and coach. And in this case, Chris Ballard kind of put this all together now. And Jim Mercer handed him over the reins, and he certainly hasn't shown the results. I just think it was because there was too many decisions to be made here and he needed at least an ounce of stability and he really had nowhere else to turn even with the lack of results that chris at the general manager position has given the colts he had nowhere to turn but to lean on chris and if you've noticed jim has not been that active and that outspoken about things recently we've all asked him to take a step back and let others handle the football operations and not be so critical in getting involved and making the decisions on your own. He is doing that, but again, he's put this now in the hands of a guy for the past six years that have shown little to no results, and I'll be honest with you, uh, he's going to get three more years. It's going to be this year, it's going to be next year, and then he's going to be on the hook in the third year. So if you're counting at home, seven is one, eight is two, nine is three. This is a reboot all the way around, Tony Katz. Yeah, I don't think the fan base has it in them. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I want no, no, no. You're absolutely right. They shouldn't look at all I, what they've been told. Look what they've been told. Hey, so so but, we're going to win this. We're going to win that, and then you don't. When when Stephon Gilmore got traded to uh, the the Cowboys, the response from Kenny Moore the second was on Twitter one word: damn. Now you've intimated yeah. that Kenny Moore could be on the trading block. But this is a uh, Ogariki. You get rid of um, uh, uh, Gilmore. You're going to totally ruin your defense. A, a potential shining star, even though it wasn't a great season, uh, for for the sake of getting the the cap room for the quarterback because you got to build around that. Or is this all just hey? How do we really? Is is this really about um, something else? I, I guess the question may be better said if I was a more of a professional at this. Does any of this, from a football standpoint, as you've watched these trades take place over the years, does any of this make sense to you? No, it, Tony, you're plenty professional here. And, and no, it doesn't make sense because there's no positivity to go on right here. You know, one of the chief reasons why when Matt Gay was signed at about midnight last night, night before last, whatever, everybody reacted negatively is because you're thinking, wait a minute, a kicker, look at all that you need right here, and you go for a kicker. And my sense of that was this, is that you're going to bring in a quarterback that is a rookie and an offense where you don't have a great deal of thought that they're going to be able to drive the field too often. So you're going to have to have somebody that is more accurate, somebody that has more of a leg, longer distances, so you can just go for the points, go for three, because you know you're going to get stalled out a great deal. And yeah, you talked about the fan base kind of getting sick and tired of it. Part of it, Tony, is also happy that the Colts are doing something that many people thought they should have done a couple of years ago. Many people thought they should have done upon Andrew Luck retiring when he did and leaving them hanging in the fashion in which they did. Reboot. Get your long-term quarterback right then and then build from there. They have kicked the proverbial can down the road at the quarterback position for so many years now. This is what they're left with. And I think what they're telling you, what they're telling us is last year was rock bottom. And they're starting from rock bottom and building this back up. 
And Jim Irsay has put the trust in a guy that he really shouldn't because the results haven't been there. But that's who he's trusting right now to put all of this back together again. That's where we are, covering the Colts as Colts fans right now, putting it all back together again. What is the one move, really quick, what is the one move you expect to hear today or tomorrow? Um, I'm looking for Paris Campbell, Tony. There's one thing. I don't. You don't let Paris Campbell lose. I don't think he's going to be that expensive. Um, I think you saw him remain healthy throughout the season a year ago. Uh, they need obvious help with offensive weapons for a new quarterback. Uh, Paris Campbell is a guy. I wouldn't mind to bring in a guy like Adam Thielen, who's 32 years old, is a veteran, and could add that veteran leadership and guidance for a young quarterback in an offensive wide receiving room. Those are two moves. I wouldn't expect the second. I certainly would expect the first with Paris Campbell, but I would like to see. My thanks to JMV, 93.5107.5, the fan, the voice of sports in Indiana out of Indianapolis. Look, um, I, I'm, I'm asking the question. I'm like, I, I'm just frustrated. I, I am. I, I, I'm trying my best to understand how this world ticks. I have forced myself to learn how the sports world moves. And when you watch a team make what can only be described as peculiar moves, you wonder what the payoff is going to be. Well, the payoff, as we see it in the Colts, can only be one place, and that is the quarterback position. Matt Ryan's gone. You clearly haven't decided to place it all on Ellinger and put it all in his hands, so you're you're saying that this is the spot. And then you make moves that engage a conversation of decimation in other places. Like a defense that you really felt that for whatever reason didn't gel, maybe it was because it was an offense that was so miserable that if the offense spent more time out on the field, the defense would have a better chance of stopping opposing offenses. And you start tearing that asunder? What's your plan? And so now I'm trying to think like like Chris Ballard. I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to put myself in that headspace. You I mean you never know what you know, right? Or what you don't know. You don't know exactly where their head is. You're not in the room, so you're only guesstimating. I find that to be a wholly frustrating experience. And so I'm asking the question of JMB, I'm like, oh, this is it's just so weird. Now cause because I'm not just thinking about the fan side of things. I'm thinking about the money. When you don't have a winner, when you don't have a winning product, when the fan base isn't there, that changes TV things, that changes a whole lot of things, and you only have so much money that you can spend, so you have to be able to put a product on the, on the field that provides value all the way around. And do I feel that these people can provide a value, a value to the NFL, a value to the fan base, a value to the Ursay family that would like to get another ring before the man dies? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Jim Ursay. You know what I'm saying. So I'm trying to, how do, how do they go about allowing this to just linger? And it blows my mind. Blows my mind. That said, I'm willing to watch and learn. I just don't know if there's anything to learn from Chris Ballard. He knows more about football than me. But what does that actually say? And some people are like, oh, no. Tony, at this stage, at this stage, you could do a better job as GM. Uh, I honestly think with about three years of study, I could do it. I think it would take three years of just some ins and out terminology, some basics that I can build upon. I, I can do it. My father has always been a fan of saying I could be a brain surgeon if they could just give me three brains to practice on. All right? That's his belief he could do anything. I wouldn't use him as a brain surgeon, but, you know, you practice on three ba- brains, you probably know more than other people.
No? Yeah, yeah, it was a weird upbringing. It really, it truly was. Three years, I think I could be an NFL GM. That's, that's hubris right there. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. If you have more than 250000 in any institution, you're basically a hedge fund or a savvy investor or a business. You understand your risk and you act accordingly. So I, I think the Fed's mandate about keeping FDIC insurance at 250 makes sense to me. But we changed all that over the week and we said, doesn't matter how much you have. And I understand we want to keep confidence in the banking system. What I would have preferred is to allow this bank run by idiots. And I'm sorry to say these harsh words, but it's a fact. This is a, these, the, you know, Silicon Valley Bank is the poster boy for idiot management now. That- I mean, the reviews of Silicon Valley Bank's top tier have not been kind, considering they sold a little over $4 million worth of their own stock in the couple weeks before the collapse. But when Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful as he likes to call himself, the jury is still out, is referring to the fact that you can't bail out everyone including himself, he who had money at Silicon Valley Bank, you can't bail out everyone. And what kind of message does that that send? And what kind of message are we sending to the entire banking community and all of us when we see that Credit Suisse is under tremendous pressure? Now, this deals in more institutional world, but you've seen the market down over 600 points today because of it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. EJ and Tony joins us right now, research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. EJ, uh, I'm glad you had the chance to be uh, with us. Real EJ Anthony on the Twitter box. Um, I want to get into this Credit Suisse problem, but first let's go back to the the words there uh, of Kevin and this idea that A, the bank was run by idiots, and B, look at what the government has done when they've said we're going to basically, my words, bail out everybody and make the statement that we will cover all deposits insured and uninsured. We've now created a world where nobody loses money. Doesn't that cause us a problem? Oh, absolutely. We, we have privatized gains, but we are now socializing losses. And, you know, the, the dirty little secret here is that everyone who had money at SVB, as, as uh, Kevin O'Leary said, they knew the risks. And you can, by the way, buy private insurance for any deposits over the 250 FDIC limit. And those people chose not to do it. This is the equivalent of me getting, uh, uh, choosing not to get flood insurance for my home. And then when the flood comes and destroys the structure, I want the taxpayer to bail me out. It's ridiculous. But it happens. Now, the, some people have asked, and, and I would argue it's cynical, except it's interesting. If this had happened at a regional bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Would we have seen the federal government move in this way? The fact that it happened to Silicon Valley Bank with people who are huge donors, with a class of people connected to huge donors. People look at this and say, oh, sure, you're helping out yourselves and each other with our dollars. Is that cynical case a rational case or would the feds moved regardless of where the location of Silicon Valley Bank was? Oh, no, I have a very sneaky suspicion that if this bank were in East Palestine, it never even would have made the news, and they certainly wouldn't be bailing it out. The fact of the matter is you you had a bunch of wealthy 
political donors at this bank who spent the entire weekend lobbying for a taxpayer bailout. And they spent much of the weekend, like look at Mark Cuban uh, on, on Twitter. He basically spent the entire weekend trying to get people uh, uh, riled up and saying, look, there's going to be bank runs everywhere. Oh my gosh, we're all going to be murdered in our beds this week if, if we don't have a complete bailout of all the depositors at this bank. And they made up all this, these excuses about how companies aren't going to be, make, be able to make payroll and blah, 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 none of which was true. It was all exaggerated, but it worked, and it got the bailout they wanted. Talking to EJ Antoni, Research Fellow for Regional Economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation, Real EJ Antoni on Twitter. Now, we've actually never spoken before, although we do have mutual acquaintances, mutual friends within radio. Uh Economist Dr. Matt Will absolutely said the same thing about Mark Cuban, and I, the other day, made the exact same reference to the idea that if the bank was in East Palestine, Ohio, maybe we wouldn't see this level of interaction. But now that they've done this, and, I, and I, so I love that, that you said that, now that they've done this, the question is, how does this change banking going forward? Or maybe more specifically, how does this change the mindset of the depositor, people like you and me going forward? Does this change levels of risk? Does this change for banks their own personal policing of themselves? Because it's very obvious, and you can dig into this, that Silicon Valley Bank was not policing itself at all. How does any of this change, or does it change? You know, the moral hazard that has just been created cannot be overstated. That, that's basically just a fancy way for, for me to say that everyone now is encouraged to take ridiculous levels of risk. Why? Because there's more upside and there's no downside. Because guess what? Now, who is going to pay for this bailout? It's going to be taxpayers. It's going to be the banks that actually uh, invested wisely and, and did their due diligence with deposits. They have created an incentive for insolvency and a penalty for prudence. And now everyone knows, because the precedent has been set, everyone knows that if I mess up, I get bailed out. Let's move it over to this conversation about Credit Suisse, S-U-I-S-S-E. This is not a regional bank player. This is much more an institutional player. Credit Suisse is, is, is a name you would say with pinkies out. And they have a 9.9% stake taken of them from, I think it's the Royal Bank of Saudi Arabia, the National Bank of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's the Saudis, it's the Saudi royal family. They're telling the people at Credit Suisse, we can't give you any more money. We're locked out at 10%. These are, this is the fault of the regulators. You're on your own with your problems. And this has got some markets rattled. So to the best of your ability, what is the issue going on at Credit Suisse? Why is it that this conversation about the Saudis has come into play so loudly? And where is the fallout here? In terms of how the heck did Credit Suisse get here, I actually sounded the alarm on, on them in particular back in October because they were over leveraged and had essentially no protection against interest rate risk. In other words, everyone knew interest rates had to go up eventually. And when they did, it was going to unravel the financial positions that this bank had, both in terms of where they got their deposits and also in terms of what they did with their deposits. In other words, where they were investing their money. 
And now what we're seeing is that the bank, unless it has a massive capital infusion, in other words, unless a ton of people or a very big institution like the European Central Bank is going to be willing to lend them a lot of cash very quickly, they're going to go under. And in terms of what what is the fallout from that going to be, I mean, it's going to be a lot of financial pain. But if we keep putting off the financial pain, if we keep kicking the can down the road, it is just going to make the next crisis that much worse. You know, I, I was so aggravated because earlier someone on CNBC was talking about how we're in the opening stages of a banking crisis. No, we're not. We're, we're in the middle, possibly towards the end. The opening stage of the banking crisis was when the Fed and every other central bank put rates way too low for way too long to finance trillions upon trillions of dollars in government spending that nobody could afford. And all that did was hide the problem until now. So just because the symptoms are appearing now doesn't mean that the crisis is beginning now. The crisis began three years ago. Talking to E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. He is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis. It's an interesting um, look at it that this began three years ago. Because if that's the case, I think people... Like myself, on the outside looking in, if you will, not having you know uh, the the unbelievable dollars that that someone like maybe uh, Kevin O'Leary has, would look at this and say, well, if this is the middle of it or near the end of it, well, this ain't so bad. Like like we didn't see hundreds of banks collapsing, we didn't see the Great Depression. Nobody was jumping in the main off of rooftops. So this is all uh, pretty easy. You agree or disagree with that statement? Well, I, I have to disagree because don't forget, if we're in the middle of it and it took us three years to get here, we got three more years to get out of it. Look at something like the financial collapse we had uh, that was from 2007 through 2009 and look at the Great Recession that followed. It took many, many years for things to actually recover and get back to some relative level of normalcy. And sadly, that's probably what we're going to have here. Now, again, what should happen is these institutions should be allowed to collapse right? They should be liquidated. The people who invested wisely and and protected their money should be allowed to buy up these assets. But that's probably not going to happen because what we just saw is that the Federal Reserve is willing to print money to bail people out. And as long as that continues, again, the more we kick the can down the road and the more inflation we're going to get in the process. Now that, first of all, very uh, well said, if it took three years to get to this moment, it's going to take three years to get out. The middle is, is a relative number. But you bring up the inflation conversation, and the inflation conversation is, is gigantic uh, to this. The spending, inflation is when you have too much cash and not enough stuff. We certainly haven't solved a supply chain issue. Builders say there's more interest in housing, but they're afraid of what the banks are going to do. And there's been more of a push for mortgages, even though the mortgage rates haven't necessarily come down to what people would have considered three years ago, a normal number. This involves spending, but I don't think people understand how the money gets spent. So let's just take Silicon Valley Bank. Do we have yet a number of what is being spent by the federal government in keeping them solvent? And how does that play out in inflationary pressure? Yeah, we unfortunately don't have a really good number for for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is we're not sure if this bank is even going to be able to find any buyers 
who might be able to throw in some capital uh, to help alleviate this big liquidity crunch that we're seeing. In other words, they may that they may be in such horrible financial shape that no one is willing to touch it with a 10-foot pole, in which case it is all on the FDIC, it is all on the government, but the government doesn't have any money. It's our money, so it's all on the taxpayer. Here's the other really scary thing that no one is talking about for some reason. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, they don't just keep all of their money liquid. In other words, it's not just cash sitting in an account. They invest it. Where do they invest it? Medium and long-term treasuries, the exact same government securities that lost value and that helped cause the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. In other words, that bank was liquidating these treasuries at a loss, and that caused or compounded their cash crunch. The FDIC is going to go through the exact same thing, which means they don't have anywhere near enough cash to cover these depositors, which is probably why the Federal Reserve on a Sunday evening set up a $25 billion emergency fund to try to help cover all this. But guess what? The Fed doesn't have any money. It creates it out of nothing. And as it does that, it creates, as you rightly pointed out, too much money relative to the amount of of stuff in the economy. That's all inflationary pressure. This is all going to be borne by the taxpayer through a hidden tax of inflation. EJ, before I, I, I let you go, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us, the question on everybody's mind is, is this the end? You talk about the idea of the middle, but that doesn't mean that every bank is going to go insolvent. That doesn't mean that every bank is run by, as Kevin O'Leary discussed, idiots. That, that's that's not what what is true about all the banks. That said, is there a feeling that we're about to enter a new level of self-induced from the bank stress tests to see just how badly they're leveraged, whether it be on the bond side where interest rates went up, so therefore the value of the bonds went down, or other investments or what they're paying out to people, that they're going to have to start searching for cash and exactly how many banks would it take to look questionable for everybody to freak out? Very, very good questions. You know, the bigger banks are actually extraordinarily well capitalized right now. They look like they're in the safest position. But the big wild card here that nobody can predict is the Federal Reserve because no one knows what the heck they're going to do. I mean, Jerome Powell is the same guy that got up there at a press conference and said a 75 basis point hike is off the table. And then he promptly gave us three in a row immediately after that. So no one has any idea what they're going to do at the next meeting later this month, let alone what their long-term strategy is. And frankly, I don't even think the Federal Reserve themselves have any idea what they're doing, which is how we got into this mess in the first place. So looking forward, we really don't have any way to predict what's going to happen with the banking sector. You're a ray of sunshine, EJ. Oh, I, I wish I could. I wish I could give you better news, Tony. I really do. E.J. Antoni, Research Fellow for Regional Economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. Find him on Twitter, Real E.J. Antoni. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. I can't say enough about this decision from Honda to move production of the Accord to Indiana. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. This is a good news story. Now, I think depending on who you are, depending on your your politics, and depending on, on your, your, well, decency, you could decide that this is actually a problem because they're going to move 
the Accord production out of Marysville, Ohio. They're going to move it to the plant that they have in Greensburg where they already do the Civic and the CRV and and they do uh, the Honda Insight, which is the hybrid. But they're going to be building EV vehicles, electric vehicles. Uh, EV vehicles would be redundant, right? Right? Yeah, it would be redundant. And EV parts there in Marysville. So they're getting the latest and greatest tech and we're building old-fashioned cars that are going to go the way of the Dodo. I think that's a huge mistake in terms of how people are looking at it. This is wonderful news because I'm willing to bet on the idea that electric will not be the only thing people drive. They will want other options, other ideas, and cars that run on gas and don't get shut down when someone says, oh, the power grid, we can't charge your vehicle today. Not only is, are you going to get these, these, this business coming here, this production, therefore these jobs, you're also going to be getting all the businesses that supply those jobs. So this is huge for Indiana. I am thrilled. It's not that I want to avoid the EV stuff or any of the biotech stuff or, or other creation. More manufacturing in Indiana is better for all Hoosiers to be having jobs. You have to think of all the people in all the places. And yes, you do want to skill some people up. I wholeheartedly agree with that. But you've got millions of people and not everybody wants to code. Create opportunities for them. It is a valuable proposition. Not our only proposition, but this is good. And if we've got the uh, auto manufacturing here and you now have the ancillaries, you have the ability to invest in the innovation of the ancillaries that make all the vehicles better. There's value in this. And I only hope that the powers that be and everybody else sees this. This is a good thing. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. I'm Tony Katz tomorrow, everyone. Take care.